We are in a revolution. But it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. We cannot be stopped, we cannot be resisted. Good day, Tractor Time listeners. This is your host, Ryan Slaybaugh. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode as you've been a huge part of our success as we launched this at Acres USA in early 2017. This is episode number 69. We have more than 225,000 listens to date and counting. Uh, We have a bit of news too we want to share, but we're going to save that to the end. A little cliffhanger. You're just going to have to listen. Today, and I apologize, this is quite the invitation, uh, we're going to make you feel a bit uncomfortable. We're going to talk about a lot of things going on in eco-agriculture and regenerative agriculture, but we're not going to talk about soil health. And in fact, we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about the challenges built into the booming interest in the regenerative ag industry, the pieces that are missing, and how the investors lining up at the gate can help or they can hurt. Uh, to explore these topics, we'll be talking with Lauren Manning, the owner of Ozark Pasture Beef in Arkansas and senior associate at the Karate Institute, an independent nonprofit research and action group whose mission is to build social equity and ecological resilience by leveraging finance to create pathways to a just economy. She talked to us from her farm in Arkansas, where it had just snowed for a little surprise in November, or shock, um, but she still found a moment to talk, so I really appreciate the time. Uh, But first, real quick, I want to talk about our very important sponsor today who makes this episode possible. Tractor Time is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals. C90 offers complete nutrient support for today's farm, homestead, and ranch. With more than 90 minerals and trace elements in nature's perfect balance, C90 remineralizes soil, increases nutrient density, and elevates the vitality of your animals. Discovered by Dr. Maynard Murray, C90 is the only product that meets his standards, including a living ocean source and elevated amounts of macro and trace elements. Freshly created from the Sea of Cortez and Omri certified, C90 is free from pollutants and contaminants, including microplastics. Give them a call today at 770-361-6092. To learn more, that's 770-361-6092. C90 is available through distributors across the U.S., including more than 200 tractor supply locations in the Great Plains and Midwest. They're always looking to grow their network, so give them a call today. And please make sure you mention that Tractor Time sent you. Thank you again to C90 Ocean Minerals. Okay, thanks everybody for hanging with us here uh, early on in the episode. The next voice you're going to hear is going to be our interview with Lauren Manning. It was recorded on November 14th, 2022. All right, I'm here with Lauren Manning, and it's a pleasure to be uh, here. And we're going to be talking about uh, a little different, unique uh, aspect of agriculture and soil health, uh, the investment aspect today. Um, Lauren, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. When you and I met, uh, it was shortly after you had been on stage at the Regenerative Food Systems Investment event in Denver earlier this year, and you were speaking, uh, trying to segue the gap between uh, what investors need to know and what farmers need to know about investors. Uh, anyway, I'm oversimplifying it, but uh, yeah. could you uh, you know talk to us about why you're there and then your background and kind of uh, how you are a, uh, uh, what you're doing today in the regenerative movement, excuse me. Sure. Um, So at the Regenerative Food System Investment Forum, I was asked to speak on a panel called uh, Farmer Perspectives, where capital is a dirty word. And that title couldn't be more fitting because I think a lot of producers have a negative experience 
or at least one negative experience with financing or accessing capital or even just basic tax issues like filling out a Schedule F. Um, and so the panel was meant to provide some context on how farmers approach finance, what works for them, what doesn't work for them and the producer side of things. And it's a really critical piece of the conversation when we talk about how to finance a more regenerative agriculture, because a lot of people in that room are there with really great intentions. There's so much capital in that room, private equity, venture, debt, all kinds of different offerings. But unless they're really working collaboratively with producers, it's going to be a tough issue. And a lot of these investors and funders come to the space and they're interested in doing what's called concessionary capital, where they maybe take below market returns or they have more patient timelines or it's they value non-economic things like community building, ecological systems, biodiversity protection, BIPOC issues. Until they really work with producers and understand you know, what is risky for the producer, how can we share some of that risk so it just isn't the producer taking on all the financial risk of a transaction, we're going to see a lot of frustration. Um, and so I think I'm in a really unique position because I have so many different lenses that I come through this. So I work at Croton Institute and our main focus there is looking at finance through a lot of different ways. And some of our colleagues work on social equity issues. Others work on in teaching investors how to invest more respect, or not respectfully, sorry, more responsibly, um, maybe more respectfully. Maybe you could fold that in there too. But educating them about total portfolio activation with ESG and impact metrics. But I'm also a producer. I have a small farm and I raise grass-finished beef and lamb. I've got a small goat herd and I'm in a partnership with four other producers and we've direct marketed for quite some time. And I also have a legal background. I was a trial attorney for about four or five years and have a master's in food and ag law and policy. And so for better or worse, I wear a lot of different hats in this space and I understand things from a lot of different perspectives or see a lot of problems. And so having engaged with FSA and farm credit and some other traditional lending outlets and also working in finance, it was really great for me to be, for me to be able to share you know, what it's like seeing things from different sides of the table. And I think capital providers at RFSI are some of the most willing when it comes to going to farms and talking to producers and say, you know, I want to make this deal with you, but tell me what terms you need to make this a more palatable transaction or to understand that a farmer may have a bottleneck or an issue that they can't quite control. And maybe if that capital provider was willing to shoulder some of that risk, it could unlock a lot of financing and get a lot of really great things done. It, it's interesting you put it that way because uh, even though you're right, those investors who were in that room were probably the closest to the edge of looking over and really, you know, jumping in and being a part of this. Many are, you know, are started in the regenerative movement, even looking at how do we create around this concept. Uh, yet the distrust was palpable still, you know, between the farmers in the room, like you said, and this group. And so, and it was a, there was definitely a difference in excitement levels and a different level of vocabulary being used. And so I wondered if you could kind of talk about, um, without, you know, because of the work you're doing with the Crime Institute is, you know, how do you, how are you guys actively building trust with that? And kind of where do we start to segue? Because you're, we don't want these regenerative farmers taking on all the risk themselves if there's people willing to help them. Yeah, it's a great question. And something that my colleague David Lazax and I are working on right now is, you know, we like this idea of a niche in finance or regenerative ag finance or food system finance. But in our ideal world, I think we'd like to see financial offerings just be mainstream that are more that are able to more readily value non-economic outcomes that are more patient and flexible and non-extractive 
that can help with things like understanding that if a producer doesn't get adequate rainfall for a season, that's going to affect yield. And we have a choice between saying, do we want that producer to hit that yield at all costs just so they can make a payment on whatever their financing arrangement is? Or can that lender step in and say, okay, we get it. There's a weather variable here. We don't want you to extract as much as you can from the land just to make your payment. We can lower our expectations. We'd kind of like that to be the main offering or the main attitude or culture of investing when it comes to agriculture and growing food and fiber. Um, and so a lot of what Dave and I are working on now is trying to do some pilot transactions with blended capital, different pieces of money coming in with different terms and different expectations and testing and saying, where can we show that if we change our expectations with finance, change our timelines, change the different types of capital that we pool together, can we prove that regenerative agriculture is not as risky as most capital providers think, that the timeline is accessible, there is a pathway to profitability, and that these non-economic outcomes are things that are going to inherently make that bottom line even more better in the long run. So valuing things like soil health, water quality, biodiversity, wildlife habitat, all of those can contribute to a healthier ecosystem. And that means stronger food growing capacity in a really basic layman's way is how we're trying to get people to understand it. That when the entire system is healthy and thriving, it's better able to withstand that one year where you don't get the amount of precipitation that you need. And a lot of capital providers today, especially in the debt financing space, they look at things annually, annual crop budgets. And a lot of regenerative agriculture is looking far beyond that one-year timeline. And I know a lot of producers are so interested in converting to regenerative agriculture or testing different concepts, but their lenders won't finance it because they can't show profitability within a certain period of time. And honestly, that producer might not even know if it's profitable. They might not know if it's going to work for them or what's going to work specifically in their region. They might have to tweak some things. And so there isn't really that safety net, a wiggle room where someone can come in and say, I'll help you with the capital upfront costs and I'll be patient with you while we figure out how to make this work and be profitable for both of us. It's really interesting because, you know, yeah, when you look at what happens on the other side of the food supply, right, on the pharmaceutical side, uh, it takes billions of dollars to get a drug to market and years of progress and people are willing to put in capital because there's a belief system that it's essential, that it's going to be used uh, around the world and it will be used for generations to come. And it's just it is kind of amazing that we can't apply the same thing on the preventative side to to, to food overall. But there are real economic, you know, you got to get paid at somewhere. I mean, there has to be a system. So. Uh, how far off am I, I do hear that we don't need new money in the system. We need to just move it from one side to the other of the food supply. How true is that? And, and how, how much do I have wrong in that? Well, you know, I think we're very privileged that we live in a world where you can get out of season produce anywhere you want for, you know, a couple coins in your pocket. You can get an apple anywhere you want for less than a dollar. And that's a great achievement in one way. And we need that cheap, abundantly available food for a lot of low income households who simply can't afford to shop at Whole Foods. And I think that's something in the regenerative food space we need to really hold on to and pay attention to is that if we want this movement to succeed, it can't just be for the Whole Foods demographic. It has to be for everyday people who maybe don't shop in Whole Foods. Maybe they have different choices, a bigger family, different economic situations. So I certainly don't want to dog the cheap food that we have because it keeps people fed and that's important. But those negative externalities or that balance sheet of what it costs to make a 38 cent apple, it ends up in other places. And one of the biggest places it winds up, as you mentioned, is the healthcare industry. And so much of the money we spend in healthcare is to treat diet related diseases that could be treated, prevented, or 
moderated with some different approaches to food and exercise. And I'm not a doctor. I can't fully comment on what the right recipe is on that side of things. But the healthcare industry is picking up a large chunk of the bill of that 38 cent apple. And so a lot of what we're thinking about now is how do we make this capital problem, this issue of there's a ton of money in agriculture and there's a ton of producers interested in producing food differently. How do we unlock whatever this problem is between them so that money is never the reason that someone doesn't transition or that food isn't grown differently? And we think that bringing in interdisciplinary approaches to financing agriculture could be really promising. Bringing in the healthcare industry or doing assessments on what is the nutritive comparison between regeneratively grown food and conventionally grown food. Can we show that there's actually a calorie for calorie difference in the nutritional quality? You know, what is the impact of our very high yield at all costs food system on the quality of our food? And I think there's some studies that people can look at about how the micronutrients and the minerals of our food have declined over the years. And that certainly adds up over time. Um, now, in terms of how far are we on the spectrum or are we making progress or can we even move the needle? There are a lot of really incredible, innovative people in this space who are working very hard to push the boundaries of finance. And philanthropic capital is coming in and it's giving people money to use to test out different things. And David and I see a really big opportunity to take some of this philanthropic capital and help direct it to the places it needs to go most. So if there's a, a transaction where someone wants to build a processing plant, cold storage, acquire some acreage that was maybe traditional row crop and it's been fallowed and they want to convert it to perennial cover and grazing or integrative vegetable crops, we want to use that philanthropic capital to help make that transaction happen. And philanthropic capital is great because it's often money that that person doesn't want back. They're giving it as a charitable donation. It has fewer terms or strings attached to it. And so we're starting to see it as kind of a grease bucket. And if debt funding or private equity or ventures come in saying, this looks really promising, but there's just this one piece we can't quite do, or we don't understand this risk, or this transaction is still a bit too risky, or conversely, if the producer says, I'm not sure I can make that payment every month, or I don't want to give up a certain equity share of my business, how can we use this very patient, flexible, non-extractive philanthropic capital to come in and make those transactions happen. And so there's a lot of people that are already talking to us and willing to do that. And we're excited about 2023. We've got some potential pilot transactions lined up to start testing out how can we de-risk financing regenerative agriculture and get the data we need to show at a broader policy level that this is how our finance landscape should just work in the mainstream. So I can't tell you how long it's going to take. I don't have a good estimate of you know where we're at years wise, but it's really emboldening to see so many people like we saw at RFSI who are simply showing up and saying, I see this problem and I'd like to help solve it. Yeah. Yeah, that really was. Um uh you know and and even though it, it wasn't uh the, the solutions weren't maybe uh, uh evident right now, that's how we get to them, I think, is is starting to build that level of collaboration and cooperation. Um, around one of the scenarios that you made me think of, I was talking last week with Will and Jenny Harris in Georgia at White Oak Pastures and they reminded me of their journey where they went from, uh, you know, basically, you know, selling into grocery stores to direct to to market and direct to consumer. Um, and that was a really risky venture for them at the time, uh, you know, to go there. It's, it's a much more established industry today, but they really questioned whether they can make that move today because of the competition in the industry, the, uh, you know, the, even the greenwashing that's going on a bit with the product and labeling and uh, how they compete. And, and they're still not quite out of the woods yet. And so that philanthropic capital, you know, uh, uh, would really help support, you know, operations like that. And I think that's really the, 
the risk is uh, if, if it's if, if, if I'm already moving to it now, am I too late into this space a bit uh, for a small farmer? So anyway, I, I'm talking too much, but but how does that scenario play? And do you hear that uh, scenario come up or is that a pretty much a, is that a unique scenario in your mind? Well, the, the issue of direct marketing, it's a tricky one. And personally, the partnership I'm with, Ozark Pasture Beef, direct markets. And if you're a producer and you choose to direct market, you've essentially hired yourself for a second full-time job. You're responsible now for marketing, branding, customer outreach, product inventory, pricing, working with labeling at processing plants and making sure your label's USDA compliant. You don't have cold storage issues, USDA inspection and EPSIS inspection around cold storage. You have to engage with your consumer, figure out how to deliver, how far are you willing to drive? Are you going to try, are you going to charge an order minimum? I mean, you can see the Pandora's box that opens immediately when you decide to become a direct marketer. And there are some producers who excel at it. They are so good at telling their story. And I think those people are so beneficial for this movement and engaging with consumers and putting a face to farming and saying, you know, our food shows up in the grocery store and we're spoiled for that. But there are real people behind this every single day that have dedicated a huge chunk of their life, if not their whole life, to growing food. And I really applaud those people because dealing with the general public and answering questions and customer service is not always easy, especially if you've had a really hard day on the farm, something's not going right. It takes a lot, but there are other producers and either it's not in their wheelhouse. It's not something they want to do or geographically they're located in a place where direct marketing simply isn't a big enough market for them. They need other options too. And if we force every producer to do their own direct marketing, I think it's going to be a disservice. And what this really raises for me is an issue of supply chain architecture. And I think we talked about this on the panel at RFSI, is if you decide to produce differently and grow things regeneratively, I personally think you deserve to capture some kind of market premium for the differentiated food products that you're growing. But there really isn't an obvious consistent market that's willing to pay you that premium. And it's also the issue of scale. If I'm not big enough to guarantee that I can supply a restaurant or an institutional buyer the same number of cuts every single month for a certain period of time, it's risky for them to work with me. The risk is really on both sides of that contracting equation. So it makes me realize that a lot of this capital doesn't necessarily need to go to producers. It needs to go to building different supply chains and creating new markets for these differentiated products. And we saw at the at RFSI, there was a panel with a bunch of corporates talking about how they're genuinely trying to source things differently, but it's honestly very difficult. They have huge product SKUs they're trying to fill. The quantity of product they need is enormous. And so where can we find those compromises between, we shouldn't expect farmers to create their own supply chains from top to bottom, and we shouldn't expect buyers or consumers to completely make every concession. How can we meet in the middle and maybe build a different supply chain, change some outcome expectations and work together more collaboratively? So um, it's a really interesting way to put it. I'm going to ask you a tough question, which is, uh, you know, how big does this revolution need to be, really? Uh, because when, when you talk about that, you know, does that big fabric model work in a regenerative society? You know, can you have both, I guess? Yeah, and I think about this a lot as a producer and as someone who comes to this space very academically, you know, will we end up with vertical integration in regenerative agriculture? And is that inherently a bad thing? And I know a lot of people listening probably just absolutely bristled at that and said, of course, it's a bad thing. But I push back on that sometimes and say, we have millions, hundreds of millions of people to feed. And we have to sort of account for the fact that if we want to change the face of agriculture, we might have to make some concessions to reach that scale. And I know people don't like to think about 
large scale aggregation or vertical integration, but that's simply the shell. If we can change the rules of the game, if we can build vertical integration differently, it may not inherently be a bad thing. Now, this is all conjectural. I'm not saying that I'm a huge advocate or that I think it's the solution, but I guess I'm trying to say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's what a lot of people end up doing in the regenerative space is they say, everything in conventional agriculture is inherently evil. We need to get rid of it and completely start over. And I guess I'm just more pragmatic in the sense that I want to see change i don't want to approach it from it's either perfect or i'm not doing it i would much rather see producers take incremental steps to changing the way they farm that they're going to stick with and that will last than trying to completely erase the whiteboard and start over because that's really daunting and i don't know that a lot of producers are in the economic position to just scrap their entire farm business and their entire operation and completely flip it so that's where the pragmatist in me comes out and says if there's a way to use existing models or existing relationships or existing businesses and structures and facilities, maybe we should think about that. You know, is that an opportunity? Not everything is inherently evil just because it's always been this way. Exactly. And I think, you know, when I was talking with uh, Andre Liu at Regeneration International and, and he was, I was, we were talking about the, the greenwashing issue, for example, and he just totally dismissed it. He's like, I don't care. He's like, you know, it's just part of it. It's going to happen. It's just what it is, but it's not where the work's being done. It's not really where the progress is. And the more we pay attention and, and, and play insider baseball to the phrase and just complain about each other, we're not actually supporting each other and moving the right direction. And, and even if they, they're starting at zero and we give to go from zero to one, well, that's progress. And that's, you know, something that he wants, you know, we want to want to solve. So I, I really do uh, appreciate that, uh, you know, pragmatic approach. I think conversely, though, there there is a fear, and I did hear this with some of the other farmers and ranchers, uh, especially in the publicly shared world and the stock market, that when you see these companies coming in, you know, can you develop a holistic shareholder? And is that something, you know, uh, that we can develop in society and, and really have control over? And I'm, I'm curious to see, is that an education question? Is that a morality question? You know, where, where are we with that? I think for me, it comes back to changing the culture of investing. And a lot of the culture of investing, not everyone, has been very black and white in terms of what's the bottom line. If I give you this money, can you hit these returns? And if you default, what's how much skin do I lose? And we're seeing a lot of capital providers already saying like, okay, I understand that that's the most advantageous position for me to be in, but maybe I want to be part of different outcomes. And I think there's always going to be some inherent self-interest when you're a capital provider, unless you're philanthropic capital and you're making these donations and you ideally don't want that money to come back. You're trying to spend down, deploy that money in a community and see it go to good work. But I also don't think it's inherently wrong to give these investors some incentive. You know, I have no problem saying that regenerative agriculture can be profitable. When you see a truly regenerative operation go through some kind of horrible weather event, like a drought or floods, you see it compared to the neighboring farms and it's often doing pretty well. I mean, it's getting hit just as hard as everyone else, but because of the practices used and the approaches taking, maybe it's diversification or different crop types or different livestock integrations, they're able to weather that storm better. And so I don't, I, I hope that investors come in and see, I can make money on this and do something impactful for the community. I don't necessarily see it as an, as an either or. And I think there's nothing wrong with wanting to tell investors like there is an opportunity here for you to also see your money go to work, but go to work for you as well. I don't think that's mutually exclusive. Maybe I'm being idealistic. I don't know. But no, I'd like I, to think 
I'd like to think we can all get what we want out of this to some degree. I think it's essential. And I think to your point, um, you know, we've really seen the economics of this change, you know, through the disrupted globalized supply chain issues that we've had, you know, the cost of uh, importing fertilizers is you know, up like 90% in our country. It's like up a thousand percent in some of the island countries uh, that are really, you know, are, are challenged by that. So they've had to create a more resilient, you know, ag industry just, and, and I think that's the fear of uh, of undoing some of this as well as we'll, we'll, we'll take our eye off the ball a bit on some of the progress we've made uh, the past uh, few years. So I thought we might get into that a little bit, um, talking about, you know, what's coming in this, because we are still fairly uh, early in putting all the pieces together uh, to really create a regenerative industry, as you mentioned. We don't have some of the supply line issues. The investing tools are still coming online. Uh, the farmer and rancher practices are still coming online. The policy support is still coming online. So what do you, uh, what do you guys, you know, at the Institute, what are you talking about or where are you guys looking at is, and, and where should our audience be looking at um, to make sure that they're paying attention to the right changes happening? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, going back to your question about can we scale this and thinking about this question now, what's interesting with regenerative agriculture is how much it's a place-based approach and how much it encourages people to look at their specific community, their specific ecosystem and answer questions that are relevant for that place and not just ubiquitous to the entire country, the entire world. And that's why I sometimes don't like using the word scale or I'm looking for another word because I think it's not going to be an issue of scaling. It's going to be an issue of decentralized food production or communities taking ownership of their food production. And that's certainly not going to be the case for everyone. You get in certain geographies where it's, you know, populations living super spread out, maybe not ideal agricultural conditions. It's not going to be a great answer for everyone, to be honest. You know, if you're in a really, really depopulated area, that might not be the place to build a processing plant. You know, you have to look to where the need is and take advantage of what makes sense for that specific ecosystem and that geography. In terms of what's coming, again, this might be kind of a cop out, but I think it's region by region or production type by production type in terms of what's coming. And Croton Institute recently released a report on regenerative infrastructure and how badly we need more infrastructure. And this is so painful, especially in meat processing right now. And I might be a little biased because I do small scale livestock production, but trying to access processing is one of the biggest bottlenecks to expanding meat production. And so a lot of what we're working on is how can we use some capital to unlock investment in more decentralized, small and mid-scale meat processing. And honestly, that's not sexy. There's nothing about that that makes funders or investors go, wow, that sounds fun. I really want to invest more slaughterhouses. That's exactly what I want my portfolio. And that's, again, where I come back to this changing the culture of investing. So many funders and investors come into Regen through a tech angle, and they say, there's all this cool technology, autonomous tractors, weeding robots, climate sequestration tools, and all these other different things, and biological-based inputs that can replace synthetic inputs. And those tools are exciting, and maybe there's some promise there, and it's certainly something worth exploring. And the venture community does a great job of trying to weed through what's going to work for producers and what's not. But we can't lose sight of these really boring, germane things that we need, like processing plants, cold storage, transportation, food aggregation, basic market opportunities for producers to start selling into. So that's maybe kind of a downer for some folks in the investment community when they say like, oh, I want what's fun, what's sexy, what's going to be something I can talk to, you know, my fellow financiers about. It's not always great to say like, oh, yeah, I helped finance a processing plant or a cold storage facility. It sounds so useless and boring, but I think people in the community know that those basic simple needs are really is what is sexy to producers. And if we can say, 
to producers in a community that there's this new market opportunity for you. There's a new cold storage facility and someone's come in and they're a wholesale contract buyer. And now that they see this aggregation of product, they're more willing to work with these producers. That can move the needle a lot in that community. And that can incentivize a lot of change in farming practices. So I wish I had something a little more exciting and, you know, buzzworthy. But I think the really boring basic infrastructure is what's going to be most critical for taking this movement to the next level. No, that's really uh, that's really interesting. And, you know, that might be a relief to some of our listeners, you know, who are, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, the Acres USA audience uh, has been doing this for a long time. And they've been in this before it was called Regen, before it was called Organic even. Um, <laughs> so they're they're fairly uh, uh, nervous about large amounts of capital around a buzzword, you know, coming in because they've seen this happen a few times before uh, at, at some point. But, and that might get to the, the, where it might alleviate some of the concern is the word like, hey, I've been doing this for 25 years. Where's the funding to help me? If I'm already moved this far along, how do I benefit or is the rest of the world going to catch up to me? We know that scarcity isn't the goal with healthy food, but we do want to allow those who have have a competitive advantage now to retain it at some point if they built that on their own. And, and to your point, um, you know, taking all the risk, you know, early on. So I'm curious, how do you how do you support those that are, you know, far along, uh, uh, you know, and then, and, and, you know, equally share the wealth with those who are eager to change? Yeah, it, it's fantastic you asked this because I'm fortunate to to have a lot of producers in my community, both as friends and mentors and business partners who are come from many different generations. And when I talk to them about my work at Croton Institute, they'll they'll get upset and they'll say, I hate this word regenerative, quit using it. I don't know what the heck it means. It means nothing. I've been doing this forever. I was one of the first people to bring this to this area. This is ridiculous. And you know, I, it's hard because like they have their perspective and I certainly understand where they're coming from. I would probably feel exactly the same. But if we want this to scale or for more people to adopt it or for there, be, for there to be more mainstream recognition of its legitimacy and the fact that this is something we should all be working towards, we have to come down to a common parlance about it. We have to be able to speak to, about it in a way that we all understand and can use the terms. And so I get it. Organic, sustainable, regenerative, regenerative, organic, certified. It's fatiguing. It's exhausting to figure out which one am I. Um, but again, for a layperson, a consumer who thinking about their food maybe takes up five minutes of their day, these words and these terms are able to encapsulate so much more. So if someone becomes familiar with the term regenerative and they do a little homework about it, then they can encapsulate this idea in their head and it's more accessible to them. So for all those people who have been on the front lines of this, like I commend them 100%. And their work is so critical for people like me to be able to show capital providers, people do this and it works and it works for a very long time and it's resilient. And there's a reason that these farmers have been doing this for 30 years because they know it's effective. And so those producers who are the old guard of these movements, we need them to come forward and we need in some instances for them to open up their farm gate and show people this is profitable. And it's so awkward for some folks to talk about their finances in the farming community, especially we don't always like to show that the operation we love most is actually technically a hobby because we lose money on it. You know, I think everybody kind of has that flavor in their operation at some point that the thing we love growing or producing or raising the most isn't always the most profitable. So we don't always like to show our books, but if we can have more transparency from those really successful operations, that data will not only help capital providers understand that this isn't as risky as they thought and there are returns for them here or that their money is well invested, that can help change policy. If we have demonstrative examples of regenerative agriculture 
withstanding the increasing weather variability due to climate change, of feeding communities, of being profitable, of providing farmers with a better quality of life, of re-engaging the community with food growth, that's really helpful. That changes policy so much faster than just talking about it academically or hypothetically. I can write 1,000 reports at Croton Institute about whether regenerative agriculture is profitable, or I can take some funders to one farm and show them. And seeing something makes it so much easier to believe than me just writing about it academically in a report. I appreciate you saying that. I think that uh, I like to compare where we are today to maybe the early climate change days when we had been about five years into hearing it in the early aughts. And uh, we had one scientist at a time on stage talking about this. And uh, it was right. really, I was in a newspaper editor at the time and, and I literally had to uh, go find a climate change denier and put them on stage next to that person to be fair and balanced because we just didn't have the science and the collective voice from the scientific community until they organized and they put out that collective voice and said, hey, here's what we all believe in or here's some tenants. So I feel like that's going to be, you know, I don't know how we get there necessarily, but I think that the world needs to understand this isn't just one or two farmers in the wilderness speaking about this, <laughs> that this is, you know, thousands of farmers around the world that are practicing these practices and uh, and and are successful at it. So. it. To that point too, and this is something I've tried to push myself on as a producer, is being transparent about your failures. Not everything in regenerative agriculture is going to work for everybody. And sometimes I think people come from this very protective, nurturing place. If I don't want anyone to criticize this, or I don't want to point out the warts because I want it to succeed so badly. And I, I empathize with that. And I share that concern. I don't want this to fail for the wrong reason. But the more we can be transparent that not every practice is going to work for every geographic location and that this is really an exercise in figuring out holistically what works best for every location and every producer and every economy or supply chain. We have to be transparent in what doesn't work. And there's so much power in those lessons of saying, and even at Croton Institute, we think about this. We're trying to test all these pilot transactions with different kinds of financial de-risking mechanisms like securitization or loan loss reserves. And we have to be honest about what's not going to work because we can prevent people a lot of headache and a lot of money and a lot of time by saying, ah, we went down that road. Here's why it didn't work out for us. But if you think it makes sense for you, still try it. Just maybe take some learnings from where we messed up or maybe we were short-sighted or simply where it just didn't work despite everyone's best efforts. So I think it's okay to talk about the blemishes and the warts. And it's good to embrace the fact that this is going to be an imperfect movement at times. And that if we create this space where it's perfectionism or nothing, people are going to be very scared to even ask questions. Like saying, I tried to integrate livestock and it didn't go well. And I would rather that producer find someone else to say, yeah, me too, but here's how I fixed it. Instead of them just keeping it to themselves because we're not allowed to talk about when regenerative agriculture might fail or fall short of our expectations. I love that. Uh, everybody listening, you have permission to fail. That is part of this. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is part of this. Uh, so yeah, we have time for a, a couple more questions. So I just wanted to, I forgot to do this. Uh, remind everybody they're listening to Tractor Time uh, by Acres USA. Uh, the one question I did want to get to, Lauren, before we, we wrap today's episode, thank you so much for the time, is the consumer aspect. I run into a lot of regenerative farmers and ranchers that say, I'm doing this, but it ain't really going to change until you change their addiction to cheap food. And, you know, how much are you guys talking about that? And how much is that going to be part of the effort uh, behind this to, to see real change happen? You know, it's a really interesting question. I, I brought it up earlier in this in this conversation is how do we make regenerative something that's affordable for more than the whole foods crowd? And I'm not dogging whole foods. 
in a lot of ways, they're pioneering in their own space and giving access to different products and giving young brands a spot on a store shelf that maybe they wouldn't find at a very conventional supermarket. They're doing something that's important and contributing. But most people don't shop at Whole Foods and most people shop with a grocery budget or they're feeding a very large family or they don't have time to research their food. And so I don't necessarily have a lot of good answers for this right now. It's something that I'm thinking deeply about is how do we make regenerative food products affordable? And how do we do that in a way where we don't end up making the same sacrifices we have made in terms of yield over everything else? How can we produce the food we need to produce at the price point that most consumers need while respecting things like environmental quality, animal welfare, biodiversity, soil health, farmer livelihoods? You know, it really is striking. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of farmers have an off-farm job, that their farm income is not enough to feed their own families. And that's something that I think is really an indictment of our existing food system, that the people, the 1% of people in our population who grow food have to have a second job on top of that. Um, consumer education has always been tough. You know, a lot of people simply don't have the time to research food and look at labels and look up ingredients and go to websites and look at initiative announcements. That's a big ask. A lot of people have jobs and kids and requirements or relatives that they take care of. And then simply a lot of people don't know where to go. And this comes back to greenwashing. If I Google regenerative agriculture, how many different responses am I going to get? How much competing information am I going to get? So the consumer piece is really a big challenge. And I think, again, my best hope right now is that perhaps we can make regenerative, regeneratively produce food and fiber so mainstream that it's not something a consumer really has to evaluate. You know, how can we get existing products in a more regenerative posture so that it doesn't become this game of either or? Either I shop at Whole Foods and I seek out these products or I shop somewhere else. You know, is again, is there somewhere in the middle, some kind of compromise where we don't put this huge burden of work on consumers? And again, some people might have bristled that and said, if you're a consumer, you're a stakeholder, you have a vested interest in the food system. But then I say, what about the single mother of three kids who has two jobs? Are you really going to put that burden on her to carve out tons of time to research which shareholders are part of which agri-food corporation and where their money is invested and what farming practices are used? Or can we create a food system that has a little bit more transparency and honesty and an ability for people to inherently trust it? And I appreciate that. And I think the idea of um, we can raise, if we raise the ceiling, maybe we eliminate the low floor as well, you know, that we can bring everybody, I, there's always gonna be a spectrum and there's always gonna be a scale of food available um, and that's going to be a long-term, uh, you know, getting that perfect is going to take generations. But uh, I think the work you guys are doing is uh, is incredible because it, it is uh, ultimately bringing uh, non-capitalistic ideas into a very capitalistic culture and trying to make those work. And I think that's, uh, you know, inherently going to cause, you know, friction to some, but also uh, it's America. This is how we figure things out. It's if, if, if we were a fascist country, you would, we could do it overnight. But we're going to have to figure out the the democratic way to do this and get along and, and figure out how to work work together. So, um, uh, could you talk a little bit about where people could find more information about your farm and uh, also the institute as well? Sure, Ozark Pasture Beef is www.ozarkpasturebeef.com. Uh, you can also find Croton Institute at www.crotoninstitute.org, and there's links to a lot of the research papers we've done, um, including that regenerative investment infrastructure report. It's a really interesting one about how we can support better infrastructure for regenerative agriculture. And then I'm on Instagram. I share my thoughts from time to time on things at White Hoof Acres. So. 
Well, Lauren, thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom and the work you're doing in this space. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope you still have hope after all this. I do. I do. And thanks for having me on. Um, finance is not often part of the conversation in regenerative agriculture, but for better or worse, money makes things move. And so it's interesting and I'm really fortunate and I'm grateful that I get to work in this kind of weird, funky world of progressive finance and old school finance and trying to figure out how to get producers more money to do what they love most. Tractor Time is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals. C90, a wave of nutrition. Thank you again for their support. And thanks again to Lauren Manning for that really interesting conversation. Uh, now we'll get to the bit of news. Um, this is going to be my last episode as executive director of Acres USA. Uh, don't worry, Acres USA is going to be strong. Uh, and a new executive director is going to be in my chair very soon. Uh, you still might hear my voice here every now and then, but I just wanted to give a personal thank you to the listeners who got this started in 2016 with us and continue today. I was in Austin, Texas, learning from the Walters family about how to run the company and what we stood for. And uh, I literally started this to help get out of their way and to give me something to do. Uh, little did I realize what this would grow into and what an impact it would have to connect you to the amazing people in our eco-agriculture community. Um, I won't be too far. I'm going to be starting a nonprofit soon in Illinois to help empower farmers and ranchers that you'll be hearing about and investing a lot of my time to get that off the ground. I'll be supporting AQUSA as much as I can as well. I want to thank them so much for what they've given me and uh, the chance to do this. Uh, Chad, Jessica, Hannah, Fred, Ben, Rachel, Sarah, Cameron, Jorge, Lydia, John, Mary, Tara, Becca. Uh, gosh, I'm leaving off so many. Uh, thank you to all the amazing work uh, you've done uh, for us through the years and really helped advance the mission, um, we've made a real impact. Just look at the world of soil health conversation today, and I think uh, everybody uh, who's listening today should be proud of where we're at. Uh, we have a lot of progress to go, but uh, the work is being done, and uh, I'm proud to be a part of that and continue to be a part of that. So uh, you can always learn more about Acres USA at acresusa.com. Thanks again for everybody listening, and with that, uh, say goodbye. Have a great week. <laughs>